Spoiler alert, we're not going to see a V-shaped recovery in the economy. Just in case you were wondering. My name is Matthew Spazzini, and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzini program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. And uh, yeah, if you guys are joining me for the very first time, first and foremost, I want to say thank you very much, and I'd like to ask you to do me one quick favor. If you guys are getting a lot of value out of the show, please make sure to go leave a rating and review on iTunes. You know, it really helps us to, to get on the rankings and to get the show to be more visible to others and everything. So if you're really liking the show, please go leave me a rating and review. I really, really appreciate it. All right, let's go ahead and hop into the, t- the, the episode. So today's episode, I wanted to talk about the V-shape recovery. I wanted to talk about the real estate market. I know that a little while ago, I was predicting a crash around March of this year. Currently, it's the 8th of March of of this year, and I would like to, you know, just kind of talk about where we're going, and are we still going to see a, a real estate crash? Are we still going to see that real estate bubble pop and all that kind of stuff, and, and is that really going to lead to a crash? And then if we have time, and I don't know if we will, it may have to be in a separate episode, but if we have time, I also want to talk about whether or not we're really going to see hyperinflation. See, in last, uh, not the last episode, but the episode before that, I believe it was episode 86, where we talked about, you know, Michael Burry, the big short and hyper, Weimar style hyperinflation. You know, when we talked about that, you know, his assumption was that once the market open or once the economy opened up, people would start spending. There'd be all this pent up demand of people that are locked down and all this kind of stuff. And that everyone would get out there and go spend. But you know, I, I said, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but I could see a possibility where that could happen. Well, I actually ended up doing some research and I found some other, you know, art articles basically arguing the opposite of that effect where we're actually, well, maybe not necessarily the opposite, but arguing against the hyperinflation idea and that we're not really going to see hyperinflation because there really is no pent up demand. But anyways, I would love to go over that today, but we're just going to have to see how far we get in the stack. And largely, I really want to talk more about you know, the V-shaped recovery and the real estate market and all that kind of stuff. So let's go ahead and, and talk about all of that first. So first and foremost, okay, you know, I want to go ahead and talk about the V-shaped recovery and how, you know, frankly, it never really happened, did it? You know, at best, we, we're kind of going sideways, we're trending sideways in terms of a lot of things, in terms of job reports, and in terms, I mean, yes, we did just get an uptick of 379,000 uh, jobs, uh, non-farm payroll jobs, and uh, which was, you know, above the expected 210,000 jobs and whatnot, and, you know, that's really great, but it's it's still not enough, you know, still, as far as I'm aware, the employment level is still kind of back in what it was in 2015, so in total employment has not recovered, we've basically still been going sideways, and, you know, on top of that, you know, unemployment claims are going down. That's that's really great. That's still good. It's it's still in recession territory. We're still not necessarily recovering, you know, quite just yet. So, you know, it's just, look, I can quote a lot of numbers. And I'm actually going to read the article where I'm getting this information from. You're going to hear a lot of that same stuff repeated of what I just said. But look, ladies and gentlemen, it's it's important for you guys to realize, okay? You know, when you lock down an economy, you're hurting the economy. You're effectively stealing from the citizens. You're telling them you're not allowed to work. You're, you're preventing them from earning an income. And it's against their will, which implies, it, which I translate that as theft. You are effectively telling them that you can't work. And therefore, the money is, in a way, being stolen from people. Well, regardless of how you view it, Production, you know, people aren't consuming in the way that they were before. Consumption, while it has been growing, it is not back to normal. Consumption is still down. This is this is not good stuff, right? It's not good stuff at all. 
And the question really is, is, you know, they were starting to say, oh, all this pent up demand, you know, it's going to come roaring back in and we're just going to, we're going to see it all come in and it's just going to be great and amazing and every, everything's going to get back to normal. We're going to have that V-shaped recovery. And if anything, it hasn't happened. And I don't know if that, it, it, it never came. There is no V-shaped recovery. So the objective of this episode is to go and record like anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes. And we might go a little over, but the idea is I want to get these ideas out there and I want to talk about all this stuff. And I got a lot of stuff I want to talk about. I got a lot of things that we want to cover. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do shorter episodes. I still want to continue to do the two episodes a week if I can, but I'm going to have to reduce the time. All right. Unfortunately, I just don't have the time to go off and edit two hour long episodes and whatnot. So, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but I am just trying to say, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I need to reduce the time so that I have more time to do back testing and things of that nature. So, you know, I'm going to try to, uh, you know, try to do this episode in a shorter period of time and whatnot. So, all right. So let's go ahead and read this article. The V-shaped recovery never happened by Ryan McMakin. This was at the Mises Institute and it was published on March 6, 2021. In a display of unconvincing enthusiasm, NBC reported today that payroll employment surged in February. Specifically, total non-farm payrolls, seasonally adjusted, grew 379,000 month over month, which was above the expected increase of 210,000. That might sound great to some, but a closer look suggests jobs growth is quite a bit more sedated than the media narrative suggests. Moreover, a look at the job growth situation in recent months is a helpful reminder that the V-shaped recovery we were promised last spring never actually happened. Some may remember all that talk about a V-shaped recovery last year. That was back when we were being assured that two weeks or maybe two months to slow the spread of COVID-19 would pay countless dividends because then lockdowns and forced business closures would somehow miraculously beat back the disease and then employment and the economy would come roaring back. The Fed could end its stimulus programs and everything would be fine. Back in June, CNBC announced the recovery from the coronavirus sure looks V-shaped and pointed to to record job growth coming out of the initial collapse in employment that occurred in March and April. But then the good news basically stopped, at least as far as employment was concerned. For example, while February's month-over-month job growth might look impressive, the U.S. remains a long, long way from where total employment was this time last year. In February last year, before the effects of lockdowns were beginning to be felt, total employment topped 152 million in the U.S. After this February surge in employment, total employment was at 143 million or still down 9 million. In other words, total employment is still where it was back in 2015. Yes, the U.S. has regained 13 million jobs since the bottom of the crisis back in April 2020, but as we can see in the first graph, total unemployment has gone sideways since last November and is only up by 200,000 over the past four months. That's not exactly a surge of anything, and it's definitely not anything resembling a V-shaped recovery. It looks more like a very weak version of a checkmark-shaped recovery, that some predicted last year, except the tail end of this check mark has so far been nearly flat. And then there is the unemployment insurance totals. New unemployment insurance claims have hovered around 700,000 and 800,000 every week for the past five months. There's no evidence of any downward trend here. And the V-shaped recovery turned into a long slog past the initial anemic recovery that took place last summer. Continuing unemployment claims are slowly lessening, however. Since the beginning of the calendar year, continuing claims have fallen from 5.1 million to 4.2 million. In both cases, totals remain well within recessionary territory. Back during the Great Recession, for example, continuing claims peaked at 6.6 million. Claims totaled about 1.7 million in 2020 before the recession began. Unemployment has also remained stubbornly high among those making claims under the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. In early January, total continuing claims under the PUA was at 8.3 million, continuing a long, slow trend downward. By early March, continuing claims had only fallen to 7.3 million. That's progress, but combined with regular unemployment insurance, it means there are still more than 10 million Americans receiving some form of unemployment insurance, which hardly suggests a robust recovery. The unemployment rate remains troublingly high as well. The headline unemployment rate for February was reported as falling to 6.2%. That's certainly an improvement from April's from April 2020's peak rate of 14.8%. But as is so often the case, the headline rate masks a more complex reality surrounding the unemployment rate. 
Although the official rate is 6.2%, the Washington Post ever long notes that the Minnesota Fed's Neil Kashkari admitted the true unemployment rate is around 9.5%. Why the gap? It is a result of several factors, including falling response rates to the Labor Department's employment surveys, the fact that many have simply stopped looking for work and ambiguities in the data over whether or not someone is only temporarily employed. In other words, the official unemployment calculation excludes a great many people who would like to have jobs but who gave up and stopped looking for work. Many others are only technically temporarily unemployed but in practice are jobless. The official data says many of these people are on leave. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has also admitted that the unemployment rate was likely close to 10% in January. Not surprisingly, Kashkari predict no liftoff of the economy until 2022. Taking all this together, it's pretty clear the United States is still very much in the midst of a jobs recession. Yet CNBC tells us that the economy is on fire because GDP totals may surge in the upcoming first quarter data. Economic growth in the first quarter could hit 10%. CNBC triumphantly proclaims, claiming the economy has roared back and is set to defy even the rosiest expectation. But unless something changes big time in the job situation, we'll have to start looking at GDP the way we look at stock prices, something that reflects a lot of optimism and growth in some sectors of the economy, but which has very little to do with the personal finances and job prospects of millions of ordinary Americans. So ladies and gentlemen, so that's it. So that was the article that I wanted to read. Look, we're not seeing a V-shaped recovery, okay? The data simply is, the, it's, it just isn't there. I mean, ask so many different people. People are still looking for jobs. People are still struggling to find those jobs. And the only thing that's been keeping this economy afloat and has really been allowing us to go, to go sideways and not feel the real pain of what's been going on economically speaking, has been a lot of government intervention, a lot of money printing, a lot of, you know, PPP loans, mortgage and rent moratoriums, and and forbearances. You, you've got a lot of stuff that's going on in this economy, a lot of money printing in particular, you know, with all the COVID relief bills and all this kind of stuff that's been going out. You've got a lot of stuff that's been encouraging the economy to, you know, kind of nulling the pain. Every time they print money, I always look at it like a heroin addict, all right? Every, you know, America is a heroin addict and we only keep surviving because we keep, you know, getting that hit of heroin every single time the pain increases. Well, as every time the economy gets worse and worse and worse, that's the pain increasing. And every time that happens, the government comes in and injects a new shot of heroin. But here's the thing. The law of diminishing returns applies in this situation, doesn't it? The more we continue to get these heroin hits, the more hits we need to continue to get. And before you know it, you eventually have to get so many heroin shots to the point that it kills you. That is the the trajectory the U.S. is going on. And there is nothing that anybody can do to stop it because that would require us to take a massive amount of pain, more than likely worse than the Great Depression, mind you, okay? That would require us to take a massive amount of pain today. And no one, no one is willing to do that. Now, granted, I understand that the Great Depression was not merely caused by money printing. That was the initial creation of it. You know, there was a lot of money printing leading up to the Great Depression and then the money printing stopped and event and the, the the market tanked. Now, a lot of people like Milton Friedman would say that it's because they they fell asleep at the wheel, they were inexperienced, they didn't know what they were doing. They should have just continued printing more. But it was the money printing that caused it. You know, he was, that's a horrible advice. The money printing continues to cause the problem. You don't just keep doing it. Unfortunately, eventually, that's what they did in order to pull us out of the Great Depression. You know, contrary to popular belief, a lot of people think that it was the the World War II that got us out of the Great Depression. That simply was not the case. Not the case at all. It was, it was actually more money printing. So, ladies and gentlemen, look, we, we would, if we were to stop the money printing today, we would see a crash very much in line with the Great Depression. And depending on how quickly we recover would largely be determined on regulation. See, the Great New Deal, the Smoot-Hawley Bill, these were definitely things that contributed to keeping us in the Great Depression longer, which is one of the reasons why the Great Depression lasted as long as it did. But the fact of the matter is that... You know, if you 
don't do anything, you take a bit of a lazy approach to it, then the crashes can recover fairly a lot faster. A lot faster. And it's important to note that these crashes, okay, do not actually occur in a normal market economy. Not these massive, massive crashes. Stuff like the Great Depression would never have occurred naturally. Yeah, there, there. You're always going to see a bit of a boom and bust cycle. That that is that that's natural, you know. But it's not widespread across the entire economy in a free market with no intervention. What you would see is you would see maybe I don't know in a particular industry. Let's say milk. Okay, let's say that. For whatever reason, a lot of milk farmers that were trucking along and whatnot, they were they're they're they having a great time. Let's say a lot of them started the milk the amount of milk farmers, let's just say that for whatever reason, a lot of milk farmers went out of business, okay? You know, the price of milk was really high and that the price of milk started to fall because more and more people got involved in the in the milk production, you know, industry. And as a result, it, it flooded the market with more supply. It took years for this to happen, but eventually the prices ended up falling. And a lot of, of milk farmers that largely didn't manage their money well, well, they had to go bust. And, and eventually you got to a point where there weren't that many milk farmers and they could charge higher prices. So they did. In point of fact, they had to in order to ensure they continued to have supply. Because if they had sold out at the lower prices, they would have sold out and gone bust. But So they raised their prices in order to if you want to think about it this way, in order to kind of curb back consumption, at least that's the way I think about it. I might be wrong with that, but that's that's the way that I think about it. They raise prices not only to make profits, but also to curb back consumption so that they can c- continue to have supply. And as this continues to occur, they start the prices of milk rise and ri- rises and rises and rises. And as it continues to do this, entrepreneurs see this and they want to start coming in. They want to start producing milk. So more people come in as the price steadily increases. And before you know it, eventually you reach that point again, just like at the beginning of the cycle where the prices have come so much, there's so much competition now, so much milk is being flooded into the economy that now you could get cheaper prices. People start charging less and less money for their milk. So that they, because they they have to deal with a lot more competition. You see this a lot. If you've ever tried to do arbitrage on Amazon, you see this a lot. And I'll talk about that in a second. But you know, as the so once there's a lot more milk producers out there, and all that milk starts to enter into the economy and everything, they start to challenge each other. They start to fight each other with with low prices. They get into pricing wars. If you want to say, if you want to think about it like that, and eventually it lowers the price of milk. To the point where the milk producers who didn't manage their finances well, who didn't manage their company well, end up going under. There, it's it, so there are booms and busts, but they're they're not nearly as severe. You, they're, so that's important to keep in mind. They're not nearly as severe, and they're also not entire like spread throughout the entire economy. Okay, usually they're limited to you know just certain sectors of the economy maybe certain industries. But going back to the Amazon example, I actually can speak from experience because I actually attempted to be an Amazon, to start an Amazon arbitrage business. Suffice to say, after my first attempt on selling some supplies, I wasn't really, it wasn't really for me. It took hours and hours. It took me a long time to find the products. And when I finally attempted to sell them, they almost all ended up in a bust. And I really only ended up making money on like one item. And that was about it. And and so now many people might say that, okay, well, I'm just going to go buy more of that item, increase the supply and continue on with it. But I realized that I've got other aspirations. You know, I want to do trading. I want to teach economics. I want to do a lot of other things. You know, do, do, getting involved in retail, you know, Amazon arbitrage is, is really not something that I want to do. Uh, so it was interesting. I, I wanted to check it out and see what it was like. So with some of the items that, that ended up kind of being a bust for me, what happened in some of the cases was that 
at, when I, before I was uh, before I had actually purchased the item when I did my research you know I actually took a course and I followed their their plan on what you should look for the the type of metrics that you should look for with regards to certain items and what I did was I picked out a couple items at at Ikea I went to Ikea and I found some items and they were under bed storage containers all right and and so at at first there weren't that many competitors there was only a couple and the price was there's still room for for a profit margin there so I decided to go ahead and I I bought these items and I put and I shipped them to Amazon but by the time I got the item on Amazon the competition had already increased not only that but that competition increased even more so the longer time went on and what I saw was that people were in a pricing war as competition for this item as the competition between the sellers increased Everyone started charging less and less money to try to get in the buy box. Now, I know this is not an accurate example of the economy because there is no buy box, right? In, in Amazon, if you've ever used Amazon, you know there's the buy box in the top right corner where the best deal presents itself. Usually, it's the best deal as long as it's fulfilled by Amazon. <laughs> but still, the best deal f- presents itself there. And that's typically what you, you tend to see. Well, in a real economy, you don't have the buy box, right? Now, I don't know about you guys. I always go and I look, I look at the buy box and then I look at the actual, the actual list of sellers and I actually go through the ratings and I I look up who's at the ratings of the sellers. Is it sold by Amazon? You know, so I actually do a little bit of research there when I do it. But anyways, as my item was on there, everybody got into a bidding war and before you know it, you know, the price fell so much, I couldn't make any money on it. Now, thankfully, I was smart enough to go with Ikea when I was buying my, my inventory because I didn't spend that much money, okay? First and foremost, I didn't spend that much money. And Ikea has a freaking amazing return policy. Like, I think it's like a 365-day return policy. It's not like a 30-month, a 30-day return policy or anything like that. No, I have a mass, I, I could be wrong for 365 days. This was, uh, you know, a while ago, just to let you know, like back in, I think, 2019. So, but what I will say was that it was a very, very good return policy. So I was able to recover almost all my money. And what money I lost in fees was was negligible at best. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, so that's something to keep in mind. These boom busts, these massive boom busts, these Great Depression, these Great Recessions are not natural to a free market economy. But okay, so now that we've talked about that, we're not seeing a V-shaped recovery. We're not doing anything of that sort. I want to jump into, because we're kind of getting uh, later on in the episode here, I want to jump into the housing economy, the, the housing market. Now, if you recall, I stated a little while ago that, and I don't remember which episode it was, but I stated that we there is a very, very good chance here that the econ- that we could see a market crash in March of 2021. My, my rationale for that was because of the mortgage forbearances. You see, the mortgage forbearances started around March of 2020 during, due to the CARES Act. You know, Trump basically gave a forbearances and increased the forbearances by, I don't remember how long, but it was almost, it was almost for a year. And what, and you, so when you go into for, uh, of, you know, foreclosure or, you know, you go into that process where you're defaulting on your mortgage, what tends to happen is you get a 30 day grace period. Well, Trump came in and, and gave, even more time than that. And I don't remember how much, but I know that it got people in most cases to March. And if they started it 30 days after, if if they filed for mortgage forbearance with their mortgage provider, usually it was with, I think it was only with FHA, USDA, and VA loans. So I don't think this went for anyone who had a mortgage outside of those types of, of loans and whatnot, just to, just to be on the, just to be clear. But for those individuals who actually did uh, file for mortgage forbearance, I, I think, it, it, you know, if they, you know, what would happen is they fi- they got the 30-day the, the grace period that they started off with, and then they filed. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, we could probably see a crash in, I don't know, April, maybe May, depending on when they started the forbearance. And I was thinking that once that happens, that's going to flood the market with millions and upon millions of homes. Because let's be be clear, 
what is a forbearance? The forbearance just says it's more like deferment. If you guys have ever deferred your, your student loans, it just you still have to pay them. You still have to pay the interest. The interest is still accruing. You don't get away from paying. It's not like they get forgiving, quote unquote. No, that you still have to pay. Well, that's what these forbearances are. These forbearances are not a forgiven deal. You still have, these mortgage homeowners, they still have to pay these loans. So with that said, you know, I was thinking that, you know, because of, remember in the last, uh, the episode before last, we talked about the hyperinflation. We went through the whole 2008 financial crisis. If you didn't listen to that episode, you really need to go back. There was a massive amount of information in that episode, a lot of value, a lot of knowledge. You need to go listen. I took a long time and walked step by step as best that I could. And I hope I did it clear and I hope I did it clearly, but as best I could to explain what caused the 2008 crisis and why Michael Burry was calling for hyperinflation now. Well, anyways, with that stat, with that stated, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, you, we talked about you know a, a particular financial product was created called a, a mortgage-backed security. This is a derivative. Okay, uh, we talked about this back there too. Derivatives are financial products who have a value, and but the value is derived based off the asset that it represents, okay, that underlines the financial product. So a mortgage-backed security is a group of mortgages that are all lumped together that are being sold as an investment product. And they kind of pay off in very similar ways to bonds, right? You get a coupon rate and stuff like that. And again, I go into detail and and all that stuff in that episode. So go back and listen. But because of that, because of those mortgage-backed securities, they link the real estate market to the stock market. So if the real estate market tanks, you're going to see the stock market tank as well because all the markets are linked. They're all connected today. The 21st century markets are all connected, more or less. All right? So with that said, I was I was under the impression that if the forbearances were, you know, if they expired and people had to start paying on those mortgages, if they're still in forbearance today, they're not going to pay the mortgage. Odds are. I mean, unless it's like a temporary situation, very short term type of thing, odds are, you know, they're not going to. Again, unless like you lost your job, you went in forbearance and then you got another job, unless that was you. So that would be a relatively short term type of situation. Unless that was you, you're you're not going to ever pay it back. I mean, if you've been going for almost a year now, which mo- a lot of these people, the next article I'm going to read by fool.com. That they're, I think they actually go in and they actually state that a lot of people have been in forbearance for almost a year at this point. If that's, I mean, if those individuals are going to skip town, they're going to declare bankruptcy. They're not going to pay on that debt. How could they? They haven't been able to pay for a, a year. I really don't think that they're going to pay. I mean, in most cases, I don't think that they are. Now, maybe there are some that do. Maybe there are some that are just enjoying the windfall of having that income back. I don't know. But I kind of doubt that's meant most people. But with that said, Biden came and extended the foreclosure moratorium and the mortgage forbearance options. And he extended it, I believe, by another six months or so. So I think he extended it out to if I count if I remember my calculations I want to say it was uh I think he extended it out again to like September or something like that. He gave he get he extended the mortgage forbearance options so you could you could defer your payments even more and he also extended the sign up period I think till I want to say June. But anyways, we're going to read that right here in this article from fool.com. Written by Ali J. Yale on February 16th, 2021. Okay, Biden extends foreclosure moratorium mortgage forbearance options. The Biden administration announced yet another COVID-19-related relief effort this morning, this time aimed at struggling property owners. The move will extend both the ban on foreclosures and mortgage forbearance options for those with FHA, USDA, and VA loans. The White House statement reads, 
The COVID-19 pandemic has triggered a housing affordability crisis. Today, one in five renters is behind on rent, and just over 10 million homeowners are, are behind on mortgage payments. People of color face even greater hardship and are more likely to have deferred or missed payments, putting them at greater risk of eviction and foreclosure. Now, homeowners will receive urgently needed relief as we face this unprecedented national emergency. Of course, they're always going to use it as minority. They're always going to call that, oh, the minorities are being hurt. The minorities are being hurt. You're hurting every freaking person because you're stupid lockdowns. You're stealing from the, the, the U.S. citizens by not allowing them to work. Not only are you stealing with from them with regards to taxes, but now you're stealing with them with regards to not working and you know, all of this stuff of, well, we're facing a housing affordability crisis. No crap, Sherlock. Of course we are. Of course we are. You prevented people from working. You have, you've lowered interest rates on mortgages so that now, you know, people are refinancing their homes. People are buying new homes, those that can. So natural, and you're not allowing people, you're not allowing the market to correct. You're not allowing the market to go into the bear market. You're not allowing 11 million people to default on their mortgages. Of course, we're, 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 we're having a housing affordability crisis. And don't call it, don't say it's the COVID-19 pandemic that caused this. Last I checked, a, a virus does not mandate a lockdown. No, it was you. It was the government. You were the ones that locked it down, not the freaking virus. People didn't automatically choose of their own free will to socially isolate and then to not work. Maybe there were some people that did, but not the vast majority. No, the vast majority were forced because of government intervention. I hate that. <laughs> Okay, I'm off my soapbox. I absolutely hate that. I hate how COVID night, how they blame it on a virus and they totally use it as a scapegoat to get away from the fact that they were the ones that caused all of the problems. They were the ones that caused the unstable situation that occurred, that, that created the, the instability that we're seeing today before the virus even hit and then they were the ones that freaking caused the, all the inst even more instability with the stupid lockdowns and yet they have the audacity to say oh it wasn't us it was the virus how could we have foreseen this issue coming we had no idea we were just trying to do what was better BS go screw yourself that's what I had to say to the just go screw yourself you screwed over the, the, the US citizen you screwed everyone else over and I don't know whether it was, you know, a planned situation, which I have a tendency to think that all the, the fear and everything, I have a tendency to think that that was planned. Not saying the virus was planned, but I, I don't know. What I know is the way you reacted caused all the problems. You are the cause of it. Either You were either evil and sinister and you caused it all on purpose, you know, talking to the, these leeches of politicians here, these, these thieves, spineless cowards. You either caused it on purpose, meaning you're a terrible, horrible human being that deserves to be banished from the country, locked up, whatever. Or you're so inept at your job, you're so unreliable at your work you're so you just you, you're just horrible you're ignorant horrible politician so either a you're evil or b you're just a moron and an idiot and don't and you shouldn't be in the position that you are that you're in but alas this is what democracy gives us you've got a lot of people voting and not in a very intelligent way Right, they're not doing the research. They're not going out and actually educating themselves on the on these issues. No, they're working. They're trying to live their life. In most cases, they're not doing the due diligence to research these people. They're just voting on the party lines. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what democracy gives us. But anyways, I I, I digress. Let's go ahead and continue with the article because we've got way <laughs> we got way off track. Okay, 
The extensions are a coordinated effort with the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and the Department of Agriculture, and will apply to property owners with mortgage loans guaranteed by these agencies. Those with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac-backed mortgages are covered under the Federal Housing Finance Agency's recent extensions. The details. Here's what today's announcements actually mean for property owners. First, if you have a USDA, FHA, or VA-backed mortgage loan, you can now apply for forbearance through June 30th, 2021. This was previously set to March 31st. You can also maintain your forbearance longer. Initially, borrowers could have up to 360 days of forbearance, pausing their mortgage payments for nearly a full year. Today's announcement extends that timeline allowing property owners who entered forbearance on or before June 30th, 2020, an additional six months of forbearance, split into three-month increments. In total, borrowers can now pause payments for 18 months total. Finally, today's move also extends the foreclosure ban on government-backed properties. Servicers cannot initiate foreclosures on these homes until after July 1st at the earliest. This was previously set to expire at the end of March as well. The White House statement says today's actions directly benefit the 2.7 million homeowners currently in COVID forbearance and extend the availability of forbearance options in for nearly 11 million government-backed mortgages nationwide. Communities large and small need this assistance. Okay, and it kind of goes into, you know, some other stuff that's not really relevant. And there's one other article that I really want to read that also talks about this. And I really wanted to just hop right right into that. So this next one is written by Tyler Durbin on March 2nd, 2021 at Zero Hedge. And it's titled uh, 11 million at risk of losing their homes once COVID protections expire. Okay. With the federal government supercharging the U.S. consumer with now periodic massive stimulus payments, $900 billion here and $1.9 trillion there, and universal basic income handouts, it's hardly a surprise that the U.S. economy, where the government is now responsible for a staggering 27% of all personal income, is redlining to the point of overheating, as Goldman found recently when, it, when its latest Goldman Sachs Analyst Index, GSAI, which provides a snapshot perspective on the U.S. economy, hit an all-time high. None of this is a surprise. When money literally drops from the sky, it would be a miracle if the economy wasn't overheating. The question is what happens when the party stops. Unfortunately for some 11 million people, the hangover will be a disaster. According to a new report issued by the CFPD on Monday, the number of homeowners that are behind on their mortgage has doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. With 6% of mortgages in delinquency as of December 2020, the Consumer Protection Bureau found that total of 2.1 million mortgages are considered seriously delinquent, with borrowers more than 90 days behind on making their payments. And in addition, an estimated 8.1 8.8 million tenant households are behind on their rent. While COVID-19 relief programs have reduced the number of foreclosures and evictions thus far, the Bureau estimated that 11 million families could be at risk of losing their homes as COVID-19 relief measures expire. ABA Bank Journal calculated, as of January 2021, there were 2.7 million borrowers in active forbearance, and of those, more than 900,000 will have been in the forbearance for over a year as of April 2021. The CFPD also noted that 263,000 seriously delinquent borrowers have not taken forbearance to date and warned that should COVID-19 relief options expire before they do so, they would have limited options to avoid foreclosure. On a positive note, however, the Bureau found that most borrowers that have exited forbearance have been able to resume their payments without issue. That's hardly encouraging to the 11 million or so who will end up homeless if and when the generous COVID benefits finally expire. In a blog post, acting CFPD director David Ugeo acknowledged the efforts of mortgage servicers and landlords throughout the pandemic to help keep borrowers and renters in their homes, noting that most mortgage servicers are working hard to engage with the record number of homeowners in forbearance and the many other homeowners struggling to make payments. And while mortgage servicers will do everything while under the government gun to generously extend terms, the moment they no longer have to be good Samaritans is when millions of Americans will find themselves on the street without a house. How the already frayed U.S. social fabric will deal with this potential cataclysmic influx of newly homeless people is anyone's guess. So yeah, so those are all the articles I wanted to read. We're not going to have a chance to go into the the other stuff. Uh, perhaps we'll do that in the next episode. I, I don't know, M- maybe. But ladies and gentlemen, I hope that was enough to kind of just get across what I had on my mind today. You know, we're not seeing a V-shaped recovery. And odds are, so, and we've already talked about it, but we're not going to see it, right? And if, if nothing else, 
This, all this, you know, mortgage stuff is even more evidence to that. 11 million people are in forbearance. 11 million. That's a massive amount of people. But luckily, you know, we're not, we're more than likely not going to see a massive crash, at least not yet. And I, I really don't see how they get out of this. I mean, you know, unless they print up money to, uh, you know, give to the banks and constantly perpetuate this problem by basically allowing the people that live in these homes and these, these renters to just go living there for free indefinitely. I, I don't know. I don't know what happens. I really don't. I don't think that's likely to happen. I think eventually the quote-unquote generosity, which is not generous at all. It's, it's, it's not. You're just setting them up for failure. They would have been better off to sell their homes when they did or when all of this started happening last year. This is the kind of crash. I believe this is going to lead to a crash. The minute that all of these programs go away and assuming that this 11 million people stays at 11 million people and doesn't drastically reduce itself, to, I think I mean, if 11 million people were to start putting their homes on the market, trying to get out from under, going into bankruptcy, it would flood the real estate industry with a, a supply of homes. You know, one of the things that's been keeping, you know, more, you know, real estate values so high for so long has largely been the lack of supply. There just isn't a lot of supply to meet demand. So values rise. And as long as buyers are desperate to get into homes, you know, sellers can effectively sell for whatever cost they want. It doesn't make any sense when you consider all the unemployment numbers and the, the amount of people that are unemployed. When you consider all of that, none of this makes sense. How can real estate be rising when you have so many people unemployed? Let me go back and read from that, that Mises article from Ryan McMakin, right? You know, what it did the Minnesota Fed's Neil Kashkari admit it? What did they admit? That the true unemployment rate is likely around nine and a half percent. Nine and a half. That's almost 10 percent unemployment. That's massive. How can you have real estate prices going up in this environment? Well, this is how they're not. They, they reduced the interest rates on mortgages. This encouraged a lot of people to engage in refinancing their mortgages, which reduced the cost of living there. That may have been the defining factor for many families as to whether or not they could stay in their homes. And then they went out and they started saying, you're not allowed to evict them. And you're not allowed. And, and here you can defer your payments. You're, you can defer your loans for 18 months. Is it any wonder? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the bomb that's waiting to go off on the on the on the market. This is what this is what I believe. I believe that when this finally hits the fan, and then when the homeowners finally run out of all the the, the government interventionist aid that they're getting, the real estate market is gonna tank. And if it does, like I think it will, and again, I don't have a crystal ball, I don't know. I think that it will tank. I mean, this is a problem. You've got millions of people who are unemployed. You've got almost 10% unemployment. And you've got another 11 million people who are who are at risk of losing their homes. This is there if these people if they do not continue to get the aid when all of that aid stops, I firmly believe it's going to tank the real estate market. And if it tanks the real estate market because of the connection between the real estate market, the stock market, and the bond market, you know, all of the markets are basically linked. It will cause a widespread tanking of the economy. And I believe very similarly to 2008. In fact, it may even be worse. Might not be, but it may be worse. You know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've been so frustrated by this whole thing. I've been waiting for this crash for a while. You know, I've been I've been keeping my powder dry, saving up my, ca my, my money, you know, basically keeping my cash reserves high because I was preparing for a real estate market crash that when it happened, I could start buying stuff up. Maybe I could get into Bitcoin when it crashes. Everything burns in a crash, ladies and gentlemen. Everything does. And the things that don't, Okay, so maybe there are a couple things that don't. It's, it's nearly impossible to predict. But I've been waiting for a long time for this to happen. And with the freaking government first Trump, a Republican, a conservative, pff, what a, not a conservative at all. 
not not even close. But with Trump and now Biden, you know, you know, going into these mortgage forbearances and now extending them, it's only prolonged the inevitable. I really don't see how they could get out of this without allowing. I mean, unless they tank the currency by constantly printing up all of that money, basically what's going to happen is exactly what happened in 2008. They're going to all default. They're going to all leave their homes. At this point, they've had plenty of time to try to get their affairs in order. If they're still holding out, hoping that the government is going to continue to to prolong this stuff until the end of all times, until Christ's second coming, they're foolish. And I really don't feel sorry for them. Now, I, I empathize with them, right? You know, I have empathy, but I, I don't feel sorry if they were given 18 months to plan and figure out where they're going to go. You know, if you don't have family, you know, and you've lost your job, you don't have any family in the area, you lost your job, hopefully you would go and you'd, you'd move somewhere to see family. Ask them to, for help financially. But if you're just staying in that situation and digging your head in the sand, that's your fault. You were given 18 months to figure out what to do. And who knows? Maybe, maybe the crash will still happen this year. Maybe so. Eighteen months would take us to December, September, right? So, if they don't extend it again into twenty twenty two, I think we might see a crash then. Again, unless I'm missing something, and it's possible that I might. I mean, it's like I said all the time. There's always an information problem in economics. You, you don't know all the variables. I sure as heck don't. I know a great deal about economics. I'm. I. I, I like to say that I'm. I like to think then I'm pretty well-founded in it. I got a great foundation. I got a great understanding of it. I'm an expert compared to the vast majority of people that are out there. The vast majority of people don't know anything about economics. And what economics they know is wrong. But still, there's stuff that I don't know. I'm still learning as well. You know, never discount that. I'm still learning and there's still a ton of stuff, lots of variables that I'm not aware of. Nobody is. Not even our overlords. So, is it going to happen? I don't know. But I think there's a good chance that it could. If they do not extend it, September, November, December, you know, could be could be the time. I would think that if we get to that point, they're going to extend it into next year. I don't think they're going to let the market crash uh, so close to Christmas. But, um, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I have no idea. So we're just going to have to continue to wait and see. But A, at least the crash isn't going to be happening in March, April, more than likely not even June. Not with not with all the, 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 the extensions that they're giving people. It's not going to happen uh, around the time that I originally thought it was. And I, honestly, I, I kind of figured this is what they were going to do. I figured they were going to extend the forbearances and whatnot. I kind of had it in my head that that was more than likely what was going to happen. But you never know. I mean, again... How long can they really push it out for? I don't know. I think the goal is to get the vaccine out, deployed, to get as many people into the into that va- using that vaccine as possible, and which I think is a bunch of BS. And and frankly, there's really no reason to get it. You want my take on that? There's I, I'm I'm not getting it. I don't think anyone should. I don't even I don't even think it's necessary for people who are high risk. It's an experimental drug. The FDA didn't even put their stamp of approval, and the FDA sucks at its job. The FDA is a waste of, of stolen money, of taxpayer dollars. I don't even understand why we have the FDA. They don't do a good job. They still they still pass and, and give their stamp of approval to a lot of different types of drugs that, <laughs> that hurt people all the time. So they're a completely pointless in, you know, government institution. But even they didn't give their stamp of approval on it because it's experimental. And then, of course, naturally, you can't, you know, now they're not, they're, they're not holding these pharmaceutical companies, you know, res- to be responsible for their product. No, no, no. If you have any adverse reactions, you can't take them. To, they are legally protected. You're not allowed to take them to court. That was, I, th- I believe, something new that came up when they were approved to start developing this stuff so quickly. So, again, government intervention slows down drugs that need to come to market and now the government intervention is once again giving protections and effectively 
is allowing this stuff to be advanced at a, an alarming rate. And I just, I, I don't, I don't, I do not believe that you really even need this stuff. We don't know what the long-term effects are of the flu vaccine. Some anti-vaxxer says it caused Alzheimer's. I don't know. But do you think we know with this stuff what the long-term effects are? Well, how could we? It's new. I think what's really happening, I think they're going to start tightening the standards and the and the restrictions on what gets classified as COVID. So now they're not going to consider as many things as COVID as the vaccine continues to roll out. This makes the vaccine look wildly successful when in reality it's not. Before they were classifying everything under the sun as COVID. Now they're not going to do that. And now you're going to see, oh, this is the most successful vaccine we've ever made. In the end, you can't definitively say that. You don't have enough data. It hasn't been around long enough. You cannot definitively say that that's the case. And it doesn't even prevent people from getting it. It's just It just boosts your immune system. You know, it encourages, uh, you know, herd immunity. Now, there's probably, a, the vast majority of people who are probably going to get it are more than likely going to be okay. They're not going to have, they're not going to die, right? But, you know, if everyone was dying from this, there'd be no way to contain that. So the vast majority of people are probably going to be fine, but it's an unnecessary risk to take in my book. It's not necessary. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, you know, that's my take on it. And I think once that the vaccine gets rolled out more, you know, maybe we'll see them loosen up on this, these, uh, deferments and stuff. And, and that will finally, uh, cause the crash. I don't know. But hey, it's not happening in March. So, uh, or at least, <laughs> you know, barring some unforeseen event, I don't believe it's going to happen in March. So now the can is going to get kicked down the road till the end of the year and we'll see what happens then. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, if you that's going to be the end of the episode. If you like this episode, make sure to like and subscribe. If you're liking what I'm doing here, make sure to head over to iTunes and leave me a rating review. And if you love what I'm doing here, you're a big fan of, of this podcast and me, then please make sure to share the content. You know, wherever you are, it doesn't matter what platform you're using, make sure to hit that share button and let people know that you're enjoying the podcast, that you found a great libertarian podcast and whatnot, you know, and and just share it wherever you are. I'd greatly appreciate that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for for coming here. I love the fact that you guys come here each and every week and you spend this time with me. You guys are very, very busy. Thank you so much for being here. I love each and every one of you. Ladies and gentlemen, Hope you guys have a great week, and I will see you in the next one. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly. I'll see you next time.